Do any of you ever have those days where everything around you says one thing, but deep inside you feel something else? The sun is shining, you have food to eat, a roof over your head, friends to rely on, but somehow, inside, you are gripped by fear or anxiety or worry. Does that happen to any of you? It's a heavy thing. That's why many of you are sitting right now thinking, yeah, that's absolutely me, but I am sure not raising my hand. The reality is, though, is everyone to your left and right feels the same thing. In our text this morning, we're going to see Israel in just such a situation. They are poised on the brink of victory. They're about to step into God's promises. All they have to do is step forward. But they will be halted by what they believe to be truth. And it's a truth that is based more on what they feel internally than on what is truth externally. We will see that the more we rest in the truth of who God displays himself to be over and over and over throughout the word and even in our own lives, it can help us to understand his love and to walk in an obedience that comes naturally and easily, to be compelled by obedience. Today, if you want to write down what we're titling this teaching, um, we're calling it Trusting Obedience Toward a Trustworthy God. Trusting Obedience toward a trustworthy God. Remember that Deuteronomy is structured like an ancient Near East treaty between two parties. It's a covenant between a conquering king and those subjects who were not his, but have now become his citizens in his kingdom. And last week, within the introduction to this book, we looked at verses 1 through 8, and really verses 1 through 6, if you're breaking it apart, that's what's called the preamble. Everybody say preamble. Not a word you use every day, right? Unless you're in history class talking about ancient Near East treaties. The preamble, it basically introduces the two parties, and um, in this case, it's Yahweh and the people of Israel with Moses acting as mediator. The second section that we're about to step into is the recounting of the historical relationship between the two parties. This is in every treaty. If you go back and you read ancient Near East treaties, uh, I know some of you just love that kind of stuff to put you to sleep at night. If you go back and read that, you'll see that there is a section at the beginning of all the treaties that discusses the history between the two parties. And so that's what we're about to step into today, and it will last through chapter 4. But what we see right away today as we look at this text is this. You can write this down. God is trustworthy and faithful to his covenant people. God is trustworthy and faithful to his covenant people. Now, what's interesting is I doubt there's a Christian on the face of the planet that would read that and not immediately go, oh, yeah, amen, amen, right? But the question is whether or not that truth actually plays out in your life and whether that amen is actually shown in the way you live and the way you feel, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to compare the amen that comes out of our mouth to the amen that might be lacking in our hearts. The author in the first few verses, he tucks in enough comments between the verses 1 and 6 that it would bring the Hebrew, the Jew, to remembrance of how good God is, that God had graciously saved Israel from their oppressors. And provided for them. You cannot read Deuteronomy without reading the Exodus into it. And that God not only provided for the people in Genesis, but he also then redeemed them and brought them out in Exodus. And it speaks here of God's faithfulness. But notice that's not what Moses goes into depth on. He could have spent two or three chapters just talking about and recounting the sea opening up, them walking through, and their enemies getting destroyed. If I were the one recounting this story, I would be sure to proclaim all the cool party tricks, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Exaggerate the story, give God the glory, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? That thing that God did, well, it's this big, right? We are fishermen for sure, uh, reaching out and fishing for men, but sometimes it's just fish stories that we tell. I would have gone for that. I would have said, man, let's talk about the manna, let's talk about the quail, the water being moved, water coming out of a rock. But this isn't what Moses chooses to focus on as he's starting his historical recounting. Instead, Moses focuses on God's faithfulness to perform his mission. See, we as humans, we want to know what God does for us. Well, the manna, that was for them. The quail, that was for them. The water out of the rock, that was for them. That's what he should talk about. That's what's gripping. But what Moses chooses to talk about is how God was faithful to his mission. Let's unpack what I mean by that. First, Moses, the first thing Moses does is he recounts and reminds the people of God's covenant promise and the fact that he has been faithful and trustworthy to fulfill those promises. 
The first promise is the promise of the land. Look again there at verses 7 and 8. He says, turn and take your journey, go into the hill country of the Amorites, and to all the neighbors in the Aravah, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession. This section of land is huge. Look up at the map here. See, this spot, this spot right here, let me break out my little toy here. I get really excited when I get to do the telestrator. Makes me feel like I'm in the NFL. Okay, this is Israel right here. Okay, that's Israel. But recognize that what he's saying right here and what God gave them, the land that he has given them, is all this. Okay, Nile River to the river Euphrates. That's a pretty large section of land. Even at the height of Solomon's reign, they still didn't have all that. But God promised this to them, and they were about to go in and take it. All they had to do was step in and act by faith. At this point, they had already taken on the land on the east side of the Jordan by defeating the kings of Sihon and Og. And so God is letting them know the land is yours. Go in and take it. They had evidence on their side that God was with them and could destroy their enemies. And yet it wasn't enough. Their assurance was that this was the land that was promised long ago to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's the end of verse 8. In Genesis 12 and 13, God promises the land as part of the covenant he has with Abraham and his offspring. And then again in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, look at what he promises. This is Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. Again, in Genesis 17, God promises this, And I will establish between me, uh, my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. But let's be careful as we read this. Much of how we interpret the land portion, I think a lot of us don't recognize this, when we read about the land as part of the covenant, what we do is we automatically filter it through our Western American mentality. We run it through the philosophy of manifest destiny. It's in our DNA to think that God was giving them the land as a reward for being his pioneering people. Guys, that's why most of us as Christians, okay, I won't ask for a a show of hands, but when you ask a Christian, man, what is your idea of paradise on earth? What do they say? A large plot of land away from everyone else, right? We have this mentality of manifest destiny. We are the children of our pioneer ancestors, but that is not what's going on here. That's not what's being talked about. We must instead understand this part of the covenant with God's first discussion of land, Yes, land was good to have to propagate and have their own crops on and to feed themselves. Yes, and they all wanted that. But go back with me in your minds to Genesis. What was God's first command when it came to the land? Genesis 1.28 tells us, And God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind was to be God's image bearers, producing offspring in that image that worshiped the creator God, and their job was to propagate that group of offspring to fill the earth. For what purpose? To bring worship to Yahweh. That was the whole point of conquering land. It wasn't just so people could be prosperous, it was so God could get the glory that's due his name. He was to be the one that would have his people subdue it. This word subdue, I've said it to you before, is the word kabosh. Everybody say kabosh. It's a great Hebrew word, isn't it? I'm going to kabosh them. Well, elsewhere in Scripture, kabosh has has militaristic connotations. It was to conquer. This doesn't just mean hunting and fishing or burning down forests or raising up buildings. It means conquering in the name of Yahweh so his kingdom reigns. All of this was to destroy the enemy that was already present on the earth, Satan. The figure portrayed as a serpent in the garden. And the one who was going to come was going to crush that that serpent. Notice this from Genesis 3.15. When he's speaking to the serpent, God tells him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, those of the kingdom of darkness, and her offspring, 
meaning Christ. He shall bruise your head, and the word there in the Hebrew has connotations more of crush, and you shall bruise his heel, right? In essence, the Messiah was going to come, crush Satan and his kingdom, but he was going to die in the midst because what happens when you get bit by a viper? You die. But three days later, Jesus rose again. We can't read the idea of the land in the covenant without understanding that the whole point of giving land is to eventually bring about this conquering. The promise of the land is not separate from the ultimate mission to subdue the earth under the authority and reign of Yahweh. It seems to me that the land of Israel was to be a knife in the heart of the kingdom of darkness. It was to be a staging ground for the most amazing heavenly invasion ever. It was to be the place where God would step into earth as his son Jesus Christ to begin the final conquering blow against Satan in the kingdom of darkness. The land of Israel was to the divine war as the beaches of Normandy were to World War II. In staying faithful to this part of the covenant, God was not only being faithful to his promise to Abraham, but really to all mankind, Genesis 12, that he would bless all nations from Abraham. And so we see right here that God is staging them saying, here's your land, go get it, I promised it to you. And what we see Moses pointing out is that God is faithful and trustworthy. Amen? He's faithful to what he promises. Well, let's look back there at Deuteronomy verse 9. And we'll see the second thing that shows his faithfulness. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. And we might read this and hear this tone of whining in Moses' voice. But not necessarily. Keep reading. He says, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. The second thing in in this covenant promise that we see of the offspring of God uh, that Abraham would gain is here speaking of many offspring. Look at Genesis 15.5. And he brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. You ever try to do that? You ever try to number the sand on the beach? I actually tried one time. I got about a handful in and I was like, this is insane. I don't know what I'm doing. It's a lot, right? You're like, duh, Hans, you're a genius, right? It's a lot. But he says, that's how many I'm going to make your offspring. So shall your offspring be. And what does Moses quote here? He quotes from that same spot. He says, God has fulfilled it. He has made you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Moses was declaring that God had proven faithful and trustworthy to his promise. Estimates of the size of the people of Israel at this point is that they had reached three million people. Three million. And we think, oh, that's cute. That's kind of like a city, you know. Well, guys, no, the earth wasn't full of seven billion people at that time with a clock running. It wasn't even full, most people agree, of a billion people. This was a ton of people and God had taken care of them. Again, though, that was, uh, again, though, what was the purpose of this growth? Was it simply because God wanted Abram to be able to claim he had a quiver full of children, to say, hey, look at me, I've got lots of kids? No. It was attached to the overall mission of God. What was the point of being fruitful and multiplying? To go conquer the earth in the name of Yahweh. The mission to fill the earth with the knowledge and worship of Yahweh and conquer it for the kingdom of God is directly attached to this. It is so important that we grasp that God's covenant with us, his people. Hear me. Let me start this over. It is so important that we grasp that God's covenant with us, his people, is to accomplish his purposes, his will, and his reign. When we reorient our worldview with that in mind, we see God for who he is and that he is faithful and trustworthy to all that he has promised. Can I get an amen? Amen. When we contort and pervert that truth, that God's covenant with us is to accomplish his purposes, will, and reign, when we contort that, what we find ourselves doing is suddenly holding God accountable for things that he never promised. We put him in a contractual obligation with us that he promised us certain things and he has not fulfilled his end of the bargain. We cry out that he has defaulted on his promises 
when in fact he has not. He has been faithful to everything he has promised. He has stayed true to his mission to unite all things through his son. Has he proved faithful in that? Yes. He has proved faithful in reconciling his creation and those that are truly his. It is not fully here, but it has already started. Has he proved faithful in crushing the kingdom of Satan with a death blow? Absolutely. Not fully accomplished, but definitely in process. You see, Moses was reminding them that God had proven faithful and trustworthy to his promises. Now, what seems like a left-hand turn at this point into an unrelated topic of leadership is actually just Moses clearly stating that God's faithfulness and trustworthiness was not completed by the exodus and the giving of his law. It was still continuing into who they were to be in that moment. He was trying now to empower the people of Israel to walk forward in who they were to be once they entered the land. They were to walk forward in power and victory, accomplishing the mission that God had given them, accomplishing their part of the covenant on mission with Yahweh. Look with me at uh, verse 11 there in chapter 1. May the Lord, and remember that's Yahweh, okay, that's uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, that's the Tetragrammaton, it is the name of God, and the Hebrew scribes, they didn't want to translate and write out the name of God, so they put Lord there, that's why it's Lord in the English. May Yahweh, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you, right? So Moses wants them to keep growing and to fill the earth and subdue it, otherwise he'd be fighting against that early command in Genesis. But he says, how can I bear, my, uh, bear by myself the weight and burden of you? in your strife. So then he chooses for the tribes wise and understanding and experienced men, and he appoints them as heads, as authority over the people. And they say, hey, this is great, and we move through it as we heard that he breaks it down, commanders over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And then he says, verse 16, and I charge your judges at that time. Now, wait a minute. Let's pause here for a second. At first glance, Moses is simply pulling from Exodus 18 and Numbers 11. You can write that down. Go read those stories. Exodus 18, Numbers 11. This is where he put in place those leaders. And we might look at this and say, well, this is just how he's structuring the people of God. Let's move past this. This is boring, right? His father, uh, father-in-law Jethro suggested in Exodus 18, hey, this is a great idea. You're going to burn out if you don't do this. And he actually implemented it in Numbers 11. But this has more to do uh, with something bigger than just pastoral burnout. The main concern was at the end of verse 12. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? In essence, what he was saying is, I can't handle and be fruitful with all your fighting, all your complaining, all your gossiping, all your backbiting, all your backstabbing. If you were alive today, you'd say all your passive aggressiveness, all your conflict. As with any group of humans, strife was in their midst, was it not? You get humans together long enough, there will be conflict. Amen? amen. You should have had a really loud amen on that one. <laughs> so Moses was assembling these groups of people into smaller units to fulfill God's will on two fronts. First, The language insinuates that these were military leaders and Moses was prepping them for battle. Everybody needs to be praying for our brother Josh over here. He's going to be heading away to some basic training. So you can be praying for him. When are you leaving, Josh? Tomorrow morning. This is going to be your life here, buddy, right? Officers over thousands and hundreds. We all need to be praying for him. And so militarily, this is what you do when you get ready for battle. You figure out who's leading who. And so these same leaders would lead the people of Israel into battle. But secondly, and possibly more importantly, these judges or officers were to be judges among the people that dealt with the strife and conflict. And they were not supposed to deal with it in just any old way. Hey, you too, figure it out, right? That's not how they were supposed to deal with it. They were supposed to judge in a way that brought about God's will of righteousness and justice. Are those, will, are those words familiar to you guys? They should be by now. Everybody look up at the board. Okay, I'm going to get these drilled into your head by the time you die, I swear. <laughs> Tzedakah v'amishpat. Everybody say it with me. Tzedakah v'amishpat. Righteousness and justice. These are, as one of my friends calls it, literary ninjas that are tucked throughout Scripture to repoint you to the same focus. Okay? These words, Tzedakah v'amishpat, 
Righteousness and justice are here all over this section. The people of God, beginning with Abraham, are to be a people who operate in right relationship with God, self, one another, and his creation. That's righteousness. And that they were going to do the activity that brings that about, the activity of justice or mishpat. Guys, remember Genesis 18, 19? For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. You guys remember what the early church was called, by the way? The way. Like that? The way. And it was the way of who? Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? What are those three words there? Righteousness and justice. Everybody say it with me. Righteousness and justice. So that, for what purpose? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. See that? The people had a part to play. They were to carry out God's way in righteousness and justice to bring about what God had promised him. The people of God had a part in this. It's by being the people of righteousness and justice that the people of God reflected Yahweh and operated within his reign. And Israel was to bring this reign of righteousness and justice to the world. Where am I getting this from? Well, based off of the words tzedakah v'mishpat here in this section, I'm going to restate verses 16 and 17 to you. But let's read through it first as it states, and then I'll read through it again in a bit of a paraphrase. Verse 16, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by... By anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Let me paraphrase for you. Verses 16 and 17. Listen to the conflicts between those within your covenant community. That's what brothers means. And judge towards righteousness. Tzedakah is there in the Hebrew text. Between the two within the community. Or if they have conflict with a visitor in their midst, an alien, you shall not be partial in bringing mishpat, justice. Listen to everyone with equal value. Don't fear man's response. For the justice you are providing, the mishpat, it is God's justice being acted out in your midst. The whole point of these judges being put in place is that they could help the people live and abide by the law that God had given them to be the people of righteousness and justice accomplishing what God wanted for them. We don't get that on first glance, do we? That's what this is for. And he finishes with the fact that he will be the court of appeals. Moses will. And he states clearly, I commanded you at that time all the things you should do. This was shorthand for Moses stating that he gave the fullness of the Mosaic law to the people. And its entire point was not to earn God's gracious favor, but it was to help this people to understand in the minutia how to live out the practical nature of God's justice in their relationships with each other. Okay? Parents, you know how this goes. You know how this goes. Hey, kiddos, let's love each other, right? We are loving each other, right? As they're slapping each other. Okay, okay, let me... Bring it down another level here. I'm going to give you some Mosaic law here. Thou shalt not hit. Okay? Now, if they got the love one another, would you have to go into the thou shalt not hit? No. If the Jews got righteousness and justice, Mosaic law wouldn't have been needed. The Mosaic law is the minutia. It's like when I was a teenager. My dad said, hey, be home at a reasonable hour. Now, if I was a moron, I would have gone, well, dad, two in the morning, that's, that's right. But my dad's my size with a less happy disposition, so I chose not to go that route. And I got home at 10. Did he ever have to give me any further curfew? No, he didn't, because I abided by the higher law. This is why in the New Testament, we are called to abide by the law of Christ, the law of love, still the law of righteousness and justice, but not by the Mosaic law, because Jesus fulfilled that. That's not what we're called to do. 
Rather than providing the sacrifice, we look to Christ who is the sacrifice. The point to all this? Well, God was preparing them to be a people that could bring Yahweh's justice and reign to bear in the midst of an unjust and evil people. You see, God's covenant promise was to multiply the people, make them fruitful, so that they could go into the land he had promised to give them. For what purposes? So that they could then live in a way that showed all the people surrounding them what it is to live in the way of God. The way of righteousness and justice. Say it with me. Righteousness and justice and covenant faithfulness. God had fulfilled his promise as much as he could at this point, and he had prepared them to go the rest of the way. God was trustworthy and faithful to his covenant promise. So what stopped them? See, if it truly was that they could just go in and take the land, what stopped them? Dear brothers and sisters, this has huge application for you and I. God has called us to a similar mission. We are called to speak with boldness into a darkened world that Jesus is Lord and to call the lost into the people of God. At the same time, we are to be a people who operate in the way of Christ, the way of righteousness and justice. That doesn't mean avoiding strife and conflict, but dealing with it when it comes. So Hans, are you saying that we're given the exact same mission as the people of Israel? I would tell you no. Very similar. But there's a huge difference. Look with me at the detail of this event when Moses appoints these elders. Turn with me to Numbers 11.24. There's a huge difference between the church and Israel. And I want to show you what it is. Numbers 11.24. Because, man, if it truly is just go in and do it, have faith by white-knuckling it, just hurry up and be faithful, be obedient, then my sermons would be a lot shorter and a lot more direct. Just go do it. Come on, Christians. Why don't you just act in obedience and righteousness? That's what he could have said to them. But notice 11.24 here. Let's read through verse 30. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. This was a one-time thing. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. If you're going to have children, those with you with prospective names, there you go, Eldad, Medad, okay, got twins. The Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. They were away from the rest of the group. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, okay? I've always wondered how he's the son of a nun, but we won't go there. Sorry, I'm all about the bad puns today. Son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. Look at what Moses says, guys. This is amazing. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? I would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. And the Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. You guys catch what he's saying there? He's saying, man, we would be fully equipped to do everything. I would that everybody would have the Spirit of God in them. I would that they all had the Word of God coming from their mouth. Guys, what did he just describe? Keep going. The New Covenant Church. He just described us. Moses hoped for all of God's people as they, that they could all claim the Spirit's anointing. And the knowledge of God's prophetic word. Moses' words there, dear church, they're describing the New Testament church. That if Israel had the Spirit of God dwelling within them, if they had the prophetic word delivered to them, man, then they would be set to go. A church that has the Spirit, that has the word of God, has everything it needs to accomplish the purposes that God has given us. And so looking back at Deuteronomy here and thinking through this, we have to understand that a church that is not capable of dealing with conflict in righteousness and justice, 
A church that first doesn't want to acknowledge it and then doesn't want to deal with it in righteousness and justice is a church that cannot claim that it is on mission with God because God's people work out their conflict in righteousness and justice. That's the whole point of these leaders. Once the battle was done, what were they going to do? They were going to govern in righteousness and justice over the conflict of the people. And this is why Paul rebuked the church at Corinth when they, a New Testament church, couldn't deal with their own internal conflict. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. Take a look there at verses 1 through 8. Paul says to the New Covenant church, the New Testament church there in Corinth, he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law, in other words, file a lawsuit before the unrighteous, non-believers, okay, Instead of the saints, because what was happening was people were getting mad at each other, and then rather than dealing with it in the church, God's people of righteousness and justice, they would go outside. Well, let's go get a lawyer, right? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, meaning conflict, Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Notice what he says here. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already, notice his wording, a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own covenant community members, brothers. What does Paul mean that it's already a defeat for them? In Paul's mind, to not reconcile our conflicts, to not judge rightly between brothers, and to not submit to our leadership when a conflict is not able to be resolved between the two parties, these are defeats for the church because we fail in a portion of our mission. We fail in displaying the way of God's righteousness and justice in our midst. That's part of our mission. Our mission is twofold, to evangelize the lost and then to bring them into God's covenant community so they can be discipled in the ways of righteousness and justice. Dear church, if we are not going out and speaking to non-believers, if we're not building relationships with non-believers, if we're not building that in order to evangelize to them, to tell them the gospel, to invite them to church, we are failing in the first portion of our mission. But dear church, likewise, we can evangelize all of Salem and tell them the way of Jesus. But if we cannot successfully model a life submitted to the mission and way of Christ, then my question for us is, what are we drawing them to? The gospel spoken out is powerful. But the life lived through the gospel so that it is spoken with conviction, that is unstoppable. And that's who the church is supposed to be. We don't huddle up in our bubble and say, well, the Lord will just bring people, I guess. We go evangelize the lost. But we also don't say, come to church, say a prayer, and then you're good. I believe you're born again, no big deal, let's move on. No, we need both. And Moses is here reminding the people of Israel that the God they serve is trustworthy. He is faithful to his covenant promises. And as long as they submit to him and partner with him on his mission, not their own, they can trust that he will empower them to complete their mission. He will not leave them nor forsake them. And the reason, folks, that Israel failed was because they did it on their own. The church has no excuse because we have the Holy Spirit and the prophetic word. Well, Moses moves on from this section of their history and fast-forwards the events of Numbers 13 and 14, which you can read on your own. It's the story of the spies that Esther recounted to us earlier. But what we learn there is we move from the idea of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness, and we see how Israel responded. You can write this down. Rather than trust, Israel's response was reluctance and fear. You can turn back to Deuteronomy with me. And in Deuteronomy 1.20, look at what he says there. He said, And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. So go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. 
Throughout Deuteronomy, you will find these phrases, the Lord our God, the Lord your God, the Lord the God of your fathers. All of them in the Hebrew are dealing with Yahweh. And all three are found here in verse 21, backing and supporting the command to go up and take possession. But instead of acting and trusting obedience, the people hesitate. You notice that? They don't immediately act in God's covenant faithfulness. They don't say, man, God is faithful. We should jump into this. And many expositors and commentators agree that Moses is most likely contrasting God's empowerment and command with their hesitancy. He even finishes with, man, this is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. God is trustworthy and faithful to his covenant promise. Amen? Amen. Yet, even with the faithfulness of God, Moses reminds them, you wouldn't go up. And remember, he's speaking of their parents here. They're about to go into the land. He's speaking to the children of the parents who were in this situation with the spies. They would not go up. They would not conquer. And even worse than that, look at what they did there in verse 27. After verse 26 says, you would not go up and rebelled against the command, verse 27 says, and you murmured in your tents and said, because Yahweh hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. These words, love and hate, these are covenant words. They murmured against God and mischaracterized him by saying that he hated them. And rather than being the God that was giving them the land, they were saying he was giving them into the hands of their enemies. This God, their God by covenant, had saved them, provided for them, and now poised them at the point of victory. And yet, their misunderstanding of God, of his character, of his promises, led them into reluctance and fear. Even to the point where they were stating that God was a different character one that hated them and wanted to destroy them. But why were they doing this? I, I could ask us, right? Brothers and sisters, do you ever find yourself in this place? You're laying in your bed at night just as they were, wrestling with circumstances or relational conflict, and you find yourself murmuring against God, asking the question of why God hates you and why he has given you over to your enemies? God, why are you dragging me through this? What is it that gets us to that place? Well, there are probably a million things to answer that, but I think this text gives us four great pieces of clarity on ways we become fearful. First, you can write this down. When we trust our senses over God's word. Our senses and intellect, it will tell us we can't risk. It will tell us we need to be fearful. The limbic system of our brain will tell us, you need to be scared. It will say, you can't risk that hard conversation with a brother or sister. You can't afford being generous. You might go into the poorhouse. You can't speak the gospel because of the potential fallout from your human resources department. You think I'm laughing. That's what I've heard many times over my pastorate. I can't speak the gospel. I mean, you know, HR. This was the same problem Eve had in the garden. God said, that tree, not good, don't eat of it. It's evil. But Eve, using her own senses, said, looks good, probably tastes good. Eh, I'm going to go ahead and try it. Often our leading is simply our feelings overruling what might be God's wisdom. When we are assured it is God's command to fulfill his mission because of his word and because of his people around us, and we know it's not to fulfill our own mission, we can step into it knowing that he will be with us. But our senses often overrule God's truth or command. Secondly, we become fearful when we listen to man rather than God's command. Notice here what they said in verse 28. They said, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. I'm going to ask God, by the way, when I get to heaven, what was the deal with you against tall people? Right? It's a joke. I'm joking. Okay? But it's always like, man, the tall people, those guys are terrible. I have a problem with that. That's all I'm saying. Okay? But we become fearful when we listen to man. Oh my goodness, we're grasshoppers. Those guys are so huge. Well, notice that they said, our brothers have made our hearts melt. Well, they made me feel that way. You ever find yourself saying that? See, Caleb and Joshua were standing there saying, let's do this. Let's go to war. Man, we got this. 
Caleb and Joshua, they, they knew they had it. Look, at God's faithful. He's already killed these guys. Let's go. Come on. But the other 10 went, no, no, no. Now, why did the people listen to the 10 rather than the 2? Well, because the 10 were speaking something that already matched what their limbic system was telling them. Well, I actually feel more what they're saying, so that must be truth because my feeling is my God. We need to be careful of who we're taking spiritual counsel from. Are they people who are standing firm in God's commands or people who are blown to and fro depending upon the circumstance? Listen to the Caleb's and Joshua's in your life. They will help you find God's wisdom. Don't listen to the rest. Third, we become fearful when we trust our feelings over our evidence. And I separate senses and feelings out because senses are what we taste, what we hear, what we see. Feelings is that intrinsic truth inside of us. We take our feelings over past and present evidences. Israel had seen and experienced God's covenant faithfulness. They were standing in the land they had conquered. And yet, this wasn't enough to convince them that God was for them. Brothers and sisters, the voices in our heads and hearts are not truth. They are only truth in so much as they match God's word and the evidence in front of us. I will confess to you one of my own. You guys are going to totally laugh at me and think I'm terrible, but I'm going to do this anyway because I want to model it for you. I was standing there in our future church building the other day, and there was a slight tweak to the schedule, and my internal feeling went, oh, man, things aren't going well. And then I had this overwhelming feeling of, look around, Hans. Oh, wow. This has taken like five weeks, and we've basically got a building. The evidence in front of me tells me that God is more faithful than I could ever imagine. How many years as a pastor have I been whining, we need our own building, Lord. Here it is in front of you, Hans. What is your problem? (laughs) My my feelings are telling me it's not going how I want it to. And it lasts for five seconds, but how much does it overwhelm us? And suddenly that is truth and the evidence sitting right in front of us should be the evidence and the truth, but it's not. And I repent because God has been faithful. He has answered your prayers and mine in the building and in this church and in so many other things. God, I repent. You see, God has shown to the Israelites that he carried them and he led them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They literally had a nightlight before they were invented, and that wasn't enough to tell them God was with them. There still was not enough to counter the lies they intrinsically believed. And this is what I think this story is telling us. Guys, you can ask for God to keep telling you he loves you in special and new ways, but if the gospel is not enough for you to tell you he's faithful, then it's never going to be enough. You can have new and different ways for him to tell you he's faithful, but if the gospel is not enough, it's never going to be enough. See, they could stand and see the evidence of his love, recognize the strength of the lies within, and they still let their lies overpower the truth. Guys, whenever you have those lies come into your mind that God is not who he says he is, that he's not faithful, I would exhort you to focus on the gospel. This same God of Deuteronomy has invited you into a covenant friendship with him, and he did so by sending his son in the flesh to express to you that he was God in the flesh. Jesus then died an unbearable death, pierced in his hands and his feet to a tree. A crown of thorns, his back whipped into hamburger meat. And he did that because he wanted to point to you today to say, I love you more than you can even imagine. And I'm faithful to you because you mean something to me. He took on such abuse that he was marred beyond recognition. And all of it to tell us that he loved us. Perhaps worst, he was divided from his father. But then he rose again three days later to prove all that he foretold and commanded was true. And he ascended to the position of king over the church and sent his spirit into each one of us to remind us day by day his gospel truth that we are loved and we are his children. If we accept that covenant love. And right now, Many of you in this room, I know, struggle with relational conflict. You struggle with being known and being loved. Do these people even love me? Am I even lovable by God? And I have to tell you, even if you're not a member of this church, you have 96 people sitting in this room today, 96 members who have devoted themselves to you to tell you that you matter, 
because you matter to Jesus. Look at the evidence in front of you and know that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy. Amen? Amen. Let the truth of the gospel and its effect in your life speak truth to you. Fourth, we become fearful when we mischaracterize God. When we mischaracterize God. I have asked many who I've met with, why, why do you not trust God? Why do you have negative feelings towards God? And the response usually goes something like this. Why would I? My life is not what I wanted. And in some cases, that is massively valid. If you have suffered abuse or molestation or harm by Christians, that is valid. But guys, what you're saying in that moment is, my life defines God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, that's not truth. Those things may totally be truth in your life, but they are not caused by God. They are the result of sinful man's choices. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is the God of Exodus 34 who is compassionate and merciful and gracious. If you read God's description in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and you look at this and it says that he proclaims himself to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no mind, by no means clear the guilty, that he's just. Guys, if you look at this and you disagree with this, because your expectations of God or your wrong theology has dictated that this is not who God is, then you have to bring your theology and expectations under the authority of the word. Overall, I think we become fearful when our fears overpower God's promises. Are you fearful to invite people to church or to speak to them of the gospel truth because you think they will see you as crazy? Dear brothers and sisters, if you're walking in the truth, they already think you're crazy, so just invite them to church so they can figure out the reason. Are you fearful to enter into the hard parts of sanctification because they might sting? Are you fearful to ask hard questions of your community group members or your discipleship group members? Are you fearful to even go to those, those groups? Well, do it anyway. God promises that when you step into those hard places of sanctification, he will be faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you. Dear church, God promised trials, but in the midst of those trials, he also promised victory. And the main reason that we're to sit and marinate in the gospel truth of God's word and the work of Jesus Christ is that it will cement for us the fact that God is love and his actions speak of perfect love. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friend. And you are Jesus' friend because he laid down his life for you. And the Apostle John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. That's not saying you have to develop perfect love. That's saying look at the perfect love of Jesus Christ. And it will cast out your fear. Church, I don't often have you repeat things because sometimes I find it kind of corny, but I'm going to have you repeat something today. You ready? I want you to repeat to yourself, I am perfectly loved by the Father. I am perfectly loved by the Father. Say it again. I am perfectly loved by the Father. If you have a hard time saying that, I would ask you, why? Wrestle with the why. You are perfectly loved by your Father. He gave his one and only Son to die for you. Why would we ever think that he is anything else but love? Church, when we understand that we are perfectly loved by the Father, obedience comes naturally because we will do what we know is best for us, following Him. But most of us exist in a state of ambivalence where we're not sure that God's plan and mission is what's best for us. And we still have a strong measure of our first mother, Eve, believing that God does not have our best interest in mind. That He's the cosmic killjoy in the sky, not the loving Father and trustworthy King that He actually is. If we hold on to that idea and don't truly wrestle through it, our obedience, if present at all, will only be through gritted teeth at that point. It will become a begrudging obedience. But what our text teaches us today is this. Write this last point down. God desires our trust, not our begrudging obedience. Church, when we understand that we are perfectly loved by the Father, obedience comes naturally. Unfortunately, this was not the case for Israel. Israel chose a different route. And let's pick up where Esther left off this morning, and we're going to read through this last bit, and we'll finish up somewhat quickly here. 
Look at verse 34. And Yahweh heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to their fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account, Moses said. <laughs> I love how he's throwing them under the bus there. On your account. And he said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. In other words, go get ready to spend 40 years wandering until I bring the next generation in. Then you answered me, The people said this to Moses, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst. God said, Don't do it, guys. I'm not there, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. Total side note, parents, if you want to be a good parent, don't go back on the consequence you've already told your children that they're going to suffer by their disobedience. Right? If you don't do as I ask, you're going to get a spanking. Okay, you didn't do as I asked. You're going to get a spanking. Well, no, 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 Daddy, now I'll do it. Okay, you just taught your children a false view of God. Follow through on your consequences. Total side note, just as a parenting tip. You can pay me later, okay? (laughs) But the main point here is that God followed through on his consequence, and the consequence for Israel's disobedience, rebellion, and their mischaracterization of God is they would miss out on being part of God's people on mission with him. They'd be in limbo until a new generation would come up. And in the midst of their broken view of God, Israel said, wait a minute, Uh, we don't like the consequences that come along with distrusting you. Uh, We don't trust you, but we're going to go do the things you asked of us so we can gain the promises. See, they're not in relationship, but they're going to do it anyway because, man, then it might work out for them. This is how so many of us as Christians are. I don't really trust God. I don't think he has my best interest in mind, but I sure don't want to go to hell, so I better go to church. And then guess what? You never go to church because you don't really want to be there because there's no trust between you and God. Shocking. I think we can often read this as God being infantile and refusing to help them because they didn't do exactly what he said when he said it. We're tempted to think, what a narcissistic God. But notice this little phrase in verse 41. You thought it easy to go up into the hill country. Israel was going to try and obey on their own power and strength, and they were acting as though obedience was something that came from themselves. I can just go do this. God's response was not out of childishness or narcissism, and it was out of concern. You see, when we distrust God or turn our back on God, when we mischaracterize him, we are refusing his covenant love. He doesn't withdraw from us. We've already withdrawn from him by that point. And we've asked him not to be in our midst, so he lovingly abides by what we've asked, and then we yell at him for not being in our midst. You see, guys, God's love is always there. His covenant faithfulness is always there. It's been offered. It's on the table. It's not going anywhere. It's been offered to you regardless of who you are or what you've done or how many sins you've committed. But my question is, is will you take it? Will you approach the table and take his covenant love? Or are you sitting back in passive aggressiveness trying to get him to follow your bidding and your will? Have you the desire to enter into covenant relationship with him? If not, obedience is going to seem like a burden. Obedience will destroy you and defeat you. It will seem like chains that hold you down and suffocate you. You'll feel like you never measure up and you'll walk in condemnation. You will end up being begrudging obedience. But to know the true love of Christ, to know that he died on the cross, not because he had to, but because he wanted to for you, obedience may still be difficult because it goes against your emotions and feelings, but in the deepest recesses of who you are, you'll know it's best and you will delight in obedience and joy. You'll have joy in it. 
And this is what Paul was trying to say to the church at Rome in Romans 8. After he said, I struggle in my flesh, this is what he told them. For the law, notice that we're still under the law, not the Mosaic law, but the law of the spirit of life. And what has it done? It set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, the Mosaic law. For God has done what the Mosaic law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, guys, Paul himself said it's possible to have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us, but we can't do it on our own. How do we do it? All that first part, Jesus Christ dying in your place, giving you the Holy Spirit. If we are in Christ, under obedience to the law of Christ and righteousness and justice, if we are walking by the Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness and points us to the commands of Christ and His Word, then we will find that the righteous requirements of the law are automatically fulfilled in us. We don't need the Mosaic law to tell us how to be righteous and just. The Holy Spirit will instead direct us in the way of Christ. And in this we find trusting obedience. In this last section of text, the people of Israel are missing the point. They were so focused on the land and on doing the religious action that God wanted them to do that they fixed their eyes on the wrong thing. But in so doing, they'd already lost. The core of what God had promised them was not the land. It was himself. They'd already lost the reconciliation between God and man at the center point of what God had given them. Their false expectations of what God had promised. God's going to give us the land. He's going to give us a fortunate life. He's going to take care of us. We're going to have success. And gosh darn it, people are going to like us. Well, was that what God had promised them? No. They'd mixed in their own feelings and their own truth rather than listening to God, and in so doing, they walked in fear and a mischaracterization of God. When we replace the goal of Christianity with anything, our own comfort, our own security, our own material prosperity, with anything other than Christ, we will have conflict with Christ left and right. We will see him as unjust or cruel. But when we realize that the end goal is relationship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, folks, we will realize we have been given everything. Your life can be a total wreck and you can still know the faithfulness of God that he has given you everything. It is in Christ alone that we are saved, brought into relationship with the Father. But it's also in Christ alone that we find our fulfillment. Perhaps if they had paused and realized this fact and sought relationship with Yahweh through repentance and sacrifice and they'd remembered God's goodness, maybe the story from here would have been a bit different. This week, my exhortation for you as you read over this section again and again and process all that we've looked at this morning is that you ponder three questions. First, question that I want you to ponder is what has replaced Christ as my greatest longing and desire? Maybe it's material prosperity. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or wife or a child. Maybe it's something else. What has replaced Christ as my greatest longing and desire? And I want you to ask, how do I let it go? As long as you have that longing and desire in place of Christ, you're going to find yourself mischaracterizing God and viewing him as untrustworthy. Secondly, what expectations have I placed on Christ that he never promised? And I want you to wrestle with, has this caused you to mischaracterize God? I've done this so many times in my life. God, you told me it would go this way. And then in a still small voice, he says, did I really? And third, and probably most importantly, I want you to start right now as you go to the communion tables, asking the question, in what ways has Christ already shown 
He is worthy of my trust. And here's a hint. I know people like tests with hints. If you're having a hard time starting that list, start with the gospel that Jesus died for you, that he rose again, that he conquered sin and death and hell, that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, that he's coming again to bring you to himself, that he will judge the living and the dead in righteousness and justice, that he will establish a kingdom in fullness of hope and joy. Start with that. And what you'll find is that thanksgiving flows freely from your lips and your heart because God is good. He's trustworthy. He's faithful to his covenant promises.